This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in the Welsh mountains on a rainy day in August in a tent at the Green Man Festival. As people run in from the rain, they're confronted by the sight of four people on stage, four people on stage with one thing in mind, to talk about a book that they love. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the website where people crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And what you're going to hear today is a recording of a live episode of Batlisters that we uh, made at the Green Man Festival in Wales on uh, Friday, August the 18th, 2023. In the middle of the afternoon, as John has suggested, you know, we got, a, we got a good turnout, which might, which might be partly because of the podcast and partly because it was really raining all day very heavily. Um, <laughs> Green Man in the most beautiful part of Wales, the Banon Pretenyog, the place formerly known as the Brecon Beacons. You know, we were warming up the crowd for the Comet is Coming uh, from now. And uh, the headline is Devo from the past <laughs> during during extremely challenging weather conditions. <laughs> but we were delighted to have been asked to perform there. And, we were. Um, so what you're going to hear on this tape, which was made through the desk at the show, is a conversation between four people about Barry Hines' novel, A Kestrel for a Knave, made into a film by Ken Loach and Tony Garnett the following year as Kess. Yeah, published in 1968 by Michael Joseph and... As t- and then made into a film in 1969. Never been out of print. So and it's never been out of print, has Never it? been out That's of print. absolutely right. We felt that it would be a book that connected with the Green Man audience and... Um, so it proved. So it proved. But before we listen to the recording, and I should just say, remember, this was recorded at a music festival, so you, you, you might hear some bleed through from the other stages at various points. Um... We're going to do the 
the um, housekeeping that we do on Backlisted of telling you a bit about the author and first of all reading you the blurb of the first edition jacket and I'm going to ask my colleague John Mitchinson to appraise this in his role as a publisher and <laughs> aesthete. So this is this was this was what was put on the Michael Joseph jacket and I, John if Barry Hines didn't write this himself I will eat a kestrel. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds like Barry to me. Anyway, here we go. Here's the if you if for some incredible reason you have not read a kestrel for Nave nor have you seen uh, Kess, here is what this book is about when it was published. Barry Hines's first novel, The Blinder, received a notable round of applause in 1966. His second, A Kestrel for a Knave, shows a more subtle, more tender development of character and an unerring eye and ear for the environment of youth. It is the story of a boy and a bird each apparently untamable, but deeply involved and dependent on one another. The knave of the title is Billy Casper. Not much beloved by anyone, and idling through his last year at school before probably joining his brother in the pits. His emergence as a human being seems effectively blocked by his mother, who is preoccupied with the men who serially frequent the house and the indifference of all those around him who have little time for a stubborn, inarticulate boy. Life changes for Billy when he adopts and patiently trains a kestrel. Gradually, learning from books and from all the magpies, jays and lesser birds he has kept before, he gains the kestrel's confidence until she will fly freely and return to his lure bringing her fierce and fearful nature into harmony with his own, becomes an absorbing passion, making him more vulnerable than before. The outcome leaves the reader questioning and deeply caring how Billy will face the terrifying odds ahead. Well, you have to say that is a very good blurb. I'm um, going to say, Johnny, that's one of the best blurbs we've ever read so. on this thing. I really think so. I really that think so. In, that is incredible. Yeah. And it, Barry Hines, if you wrote that, uh, wherever you now reside, uh, thank you very much. Because if you haven't uh, read or seen A Castle for Naval Kess, you have a treat hopefully you now understand where this episode is coming from. And also, yes, indeed, you have a treat in store. Um, we should say that Barry Hines was... Uh, a bit of background on him. He was, uh, I mean, he came to prominence in the 1960s. His, his name is often connect, connected with um, with uh, other writers that period, Alan Silito in particular, as, as being a kind of working class novelist. Um, uh, he wrote nine novels in the end, and they all are sort of set in and around, for, for the most part, uh, uh, South Yorkshire, which is where he was from. Uh, Yes, and he was. He was. He was born in Hoyland, yeah, uh, near, near Barnsley, Barnsley in 1939, and he died in Hoyland near Barnsley. He did in indeed. 2016, and and he spent time. Uh, he didn't go down the pit, but he did work uh, briefly as a, a, a as an apprentice mining surveyor in in the pit. Um, unlike Billy Casper, he was a bit of a star student. He was also an extraordinary athlete, which we do mention in the podcast. Mm. 
um, he played uh, athletics. He he represented, um, I think, Yorkshire athletics. But he played uh, football for for Barnsley and for uh, Crawley Town. But then became a teacher, and I think it was out of his teaching experience, combined with the experience of his brother uh, Richard, who had kept a kestrel, um, that uh, the story for the story for Kes came came about, and it was. It, it was a success. The film came out the next year and made it even more of a success. It sold over two million copies. The great uh, bard of Barnsley has said Our about former uh, a former guest on the podcast has said about uh, a kestrel for a knave for, for people who come from South York, Yorkshire and Barnsley in particular is our Moby Dick, our things fall apart, <laughs> our great Gatsby. Mm. So, and it has been the book, I think, that more or less defined Barry Barry Hines' Barry career. Hines career. Okay, yeah. I mean, I want to say also, um, firstly, Ken Loach made three films in collaboration with Barry Hines. He did. A Castrol for a Knave, The Gamekeeper in 1975, and Looks and Smiles in 1981. And But it clearly is A Castrol for a Knave, which is the one which lives on in the British public imagination. Yeah. And um, I also, I, I want to just acknowledge that I, after Barry Hines died, I talked about, or we talked about his career on Backlisted. Um, and I read his third novel, which is called First Signs. Um, if you go back and find that episode, which using our website, you will be able to, backlisted.fm, you'll hear me saying, um, this isn't a very good book, First Signs. And I feel really guilty, Johnny, now, mm. having revisited the Kestrel for Nave and also looking at the overview of Barry Hines's other work, that when we... Um, I haven't changed my mind. First Signs is not a very good book, but it is not representative of Hines's vision or his talent. And this is a really lovely opportunity to redress that balance for me, anyway. Um, I'd also like to point out that Hines went on uh, firstly, in addition to writing the novels John has, has talked about, um, he also wrote the screenplay of Threads. He did. Um, which, if, if that was the only thing he'd ever done, Threads, which was a BBC film shown in 1984 about the probable effects of a nuclear strike on a major city, if that was the only thing he'd ever done, he'd be... Um, a culturally significant figure but the fact that he had the range to write that write a best-selling novel write a film script uh, that was the basis of one of the most beloved British films of the last 60-70 years that he wrote plays that were produced at the Royal Court he was that thing we always look for on Backlisted the real thing he he was a, a working writer. Yeah. And he loved being a working writer. And um, it's partly for that reason we were so pleased to welcome both Rose Blake and Bob Stanley, who you'll hear me introduce on the actual live recording, because they bring such different perspectives on a Kestrel for a Nave as a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. We'll say a bit after you've heard the... The, the discussion about how it felt talking about this book on stage in in Wales, in, at Green Man, in that place. Johnny, is there anything else do you think we need to say before we get into it? 
yeah, just as a, linking back to our last podcast, summer reading special, uh, Catherine Taylor, whose memoir I talked about, The Stirrings, she was an extra in Threads. So and <laughs> writes about that in the books. <laughs> was so she? Small, small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. Andy. Good Lord. Right. Okay. Here we are. You're joining us live at the Green Man Festival in Wales. Smell the mud, hear the rain. Behind us on the big screen is projected the lo- the famous photograph of Billy Casper flicking everyone in that tent the V's. <laughs> As is his... the vi- Nikki, our producer, I'm going to ask, do we need to explain the phrase flicking the V's from other people around the world? No, no. I think we should just let it lie. It's a nice anglicised right. thing. You can just figure it out. All right, yeah. It's right. not, ironically, in the in, in given the subject of a Kestrel for a Knave, flipping the bird. It's a very different gesture. But if you're not familiar with it, um, listeners in other countries, just Google the phrase a Kestrel for a Knave, Billy Casper, and you will see what we mean ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hey, are you a member? What do you mean? Are you a member of the library? I don't know about that. I don't want a book on parking, that's all. Well, you have to be a member to take a book out. Well, I only want one. Why well, have you filled one of these forms in? No. Well, you're not a member then. You'll have to take one of these forms first for your father to sign. My dad's away. Well, you can wait till he comes back home, can't you? I don't mean that. I mean, he's left home. Oh, I see. Well, in that case, your mother will have to sign it for you. How about she's at work and she'll not be home till tea time and it's Sunday tomorrow? There's no rush, is there? I've never broke a book, you know. I haven't tore it all. Well, look at your hands. They're absolutely filthy. We'll end up with dirty books that way. I don't read dirty books. I should hope you don't read dirty books. You're not old enough to read dirty books. My mum knows one of the people who works here, you know. That'll help, won't it? No, that doesn't help at all. You still uh, have to have the back signed. To be a member, you'll have to have somebody over 21 who is on the borough electoral roll to sign it for you. Ah, oh, well, I'm over 21. You're not over 21. Ah, oh, but I, I vote. You don't vote. You're not I old do. enough to vote. I vote for my mum. She do not like voting, so I do it. Just have to wait for it, won't you? Where would I find a, a book then? In a shop like Well, you'd have to go down the street. There's a second-hand bookshop there. You'll find some down there. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for uh, coming. Thank you to Dave. Welcome to Backlist. The podcast gives new life to old books. It's really fantastic to be here at the Green Man Festival in Wales. Talking about Barry Hines and a kestrel for a knave. So we're joined by two guests today. Uh, They are Rose Blake and Bob Stanley. 
Rose works as a freelance illustrator in London. She has illustrated many picture books, including A History of Pictures for Children by David Hockney and Martin Gayford. Uh, she very luckily grew up opposite a library and has been obsessively reading ever since. She published Egg and Spoon, her first piece of writing last year with Rough Trade, and is currently working slash struggling on her next written project. Yes, that is, that's the nature of the beast. Um, we're also joined by Bob Stanley. Since 1987, Bob Stanley has written about music for publications including The Face, Smash Hits, NME, The Guardian, The Times, The LA Times and The Paris Review. He is a member of the Mercury-nominated pop group Saint Etienne and has written two acclaimed pop music histories that span the 20th century. Yeah, 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 the story of modern pop, Faber 2013, and Let's Do It, the birth of pop, Faber 2022, which won the 2023 Penderin Prize. His latest book, The Bee Gees, Children of the World, is published by 9-8 and is available on the bookstall next door. I want to get straight to it then with A Kestrel for a Knave. Rose? Yes. When did you first read A Kestrel for a Knave by Barry Hine? I think it was in 2002. So I was 14 and I just got it out from my local library and I reread it last week and it was a totally different experience of reading. Wobbly. Um in the way that I read it just as a story when I was a 14-year-old, I read it as a boy who finds a hawk and the hawk dies. And I read it so much more recently as a, you know, it's a book about society and it's a book about politics and it's a book about so many other than various things. Yeah. Um, Bob, where did you, when did you read the book or see the film? Um, I read the book at school when I was 12 or 13, I see. Um, but I saw the film when I was five. It's the first film I ever saw at the cinema, and it was um, the support film for the Jungle Book. I went to Red Hill Odia with my mum, and she didn't know what Kez was. It was brand, a brand new film at the time, um, and she was obviously horrified. <laughs> I mentioned this to her yesterday. She's like, "Oh no!" You know, um, she can't remember covering my eyes, but I couldn't work out why. Um, but I, I, I really loved the look and feel of the film, weirdly. I mean, I obviously completely missed everything that was going on. I just saw the landscapes and uh, thought Billy looked cool. And uh, that was, you know, my main takeaway from that film. What was the first film you ever saw in the cinema, Rose? Oh, God. Um, I can't remember. Probably, like, The Lion King or The Little Mermaid or something like that. Yeah, mine was, mine was Dougal, and, Dougal and the Blue Cat. <laughs> Uh, we were just saying, you know, Dougal and the Blue Cat is a very psychedelic text <laughs> and Kez really isn't. John was saying it's the least psychedelic novel of the 1960s. Yeah, Penguin have put an interesting new jacket on it, which is by Alan Jones, the uh, 60s. Well, it's not, he's still, I think, alive. He's still, but he, was, he came to prominence in the 60s. It's, and it's a very psychedelic, pretty abstract looking jacket. It's, Seems like a, I mean, you know, it's, well, brave. Yeah. Given the content. And you, uh, John, you um, you have a special connection with this novel, don't you? Uh, well, I have a special connection in that I was, I read it when I was about nine. And um, that was about the time I was completely into bird watching. And I was excited to discover that the Young Ornithologist Club back in 1970, 1970, I think it was, uh, their little badge. You get a little badge if you join, and it was a little kestrel. And somehow the memory of, of reading the book and being... I was obsessed with 
I wanted my parents to give me falconry lessons. Um, my parental situation wasn't quite as bad as Billy Casper's, but it was met with fairly, fairly round contempt, was it? What? Falconry? Where are we going to find? And I, in fact, I did find, I did find a place where you could go and, I mean, it wasn't, I, I couldn't actually learn how to do it, but I could hold a hawk. And um, that memory, the first time I've had a hawk on my wrist and the feeling of, of incredible lightness, but incredible strength when they fly away and they come back, really live with me for, for life. And I, I, I'm, Totally, it was a few years before I actually saw the film, but the book had, the book had really kind of hit a very, very deep. Uh, I mean, I think anybody who's grown up with, I, as I did, my my early years were spent up in the industrial northeast and getting out into the fields and being and and, and you know finding nature out there was 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 really important. So yeah, um, but a bit like you, Rose, going back to it, I haven't read it since I was nine. So I and there was huge bits that I'd forgotten in this novel that 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 really blew me away this time around. Rose, well, you said that you found it dif different when you read it, yeah, to what you remembered. Um, and you are you are significantly younger than the the older gentlemen gathered on this stage, so you don't remember when the world was quite like that. No, and so did it feel dated to you? Or? No, not at all. It, I mean, it's about I my main take from the book was that. It's about treat the way that people are treated, and it's about the fact that this this boy is just his life is cruel. Everything about his life is cruel, and you can't train a hawk using cruelty. It's impossible to train a hawk using cruelty. So that was the main thing that I took from it was this idea of this boy that's up against everything: his mum, his brother, his teachers. Everything in his life is just cruel to him, but he can he can escape into this world of the hawk, which, I mean, if you tried to train a hawk with cruelty, it just wouldn't happen. So it's a universal thing, isn't it? I think it's a very timeless idea there. Uh, Bob, were you, you, could you identify with it, despite coming from the Croydon area? Well, no, I mean, if I said I identified with Billy Casper, I think it'd be a bit of a stretch. But, um, yeah, certainly, I mean, I didn't enjoy school at all. Um, and I didn't feel like I was getting any education there. It's pretty commonplace in schools now, I think, but I was literally being trained to do exams, and clearly as I wasn't going to get into university, I was just like shunted to the back. So I can I definitely relate to that, rereading it now. I mean, I think I kind of worked this out when I read it the first time around, but it's like it's clearly uh, a very political book, and it's, um, it's kind of dryness, it's, it's sort of spare language, is there to like make you realise it's a political book? And I, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't I certainly didn't get that from the film when I was five. And I certainly think it's true, John. Tony Garnett, Ken Loach's producer, and Loach himself, the first thing they ever say about Kess, if they're asked about it now, is it, it's a political film. Yeah. If you watch it and think it's a film only about a boy and his bird, you're not you're not watching it right. You know, it's in, it's a film about the system, whatever you want to call the system in this context. Um, I, I mean, I I can remember reading it, and I couldn't see the centre of it. I kind of root for Billy Casper, but why am I being denied certain kinds of narrative closure? You were telling me what they wanted to do in the film adaptation, or some producers wanted to do. Yeah, there, there's a. Apparently they, they were it was not an easy film. Got to remember it's Barry Barry Hines' first novel and it's Ken Loach's first feature film. 
Very early, very early. Very early one. Very yeah. early. So it wasn't a shoe in to get money. And there was one the, one producer uh, came and looked at it and said, yeah, well, what we really want is we want Judd, the brother, to actually be the partner of the mother. And in a rage, he kills the mother. And then Billy Casper runs and disappears. And Mr. Farthing spends a time searching the streets of distant towns, finally finds Billy Casper, brings him back and gets him a job in a zoo. And Barry Hines said, well, he said, we found that quite, that scenario quite easy to resist. And eventually United Artists did come and fund the film. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you would imagine, we'll, we'll maybe talk about the differences in, in, in a minute, but the differences between the film and the book, because they are quite marked. There are some marked differences. Although pretty much all the dialogue in the in the film comes from the novel and tony garner and 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 ken loach said they felt slightly sheepish later that they'd got screenwriting credits when really it should have been barry hines because he yeah yeah rose i wonder whether you could we were talking about what the prose um how spare the prose is i wonder if you could read us a small section from the novel so people who haven't read it can can see the restraint with which I mean, I'm Hines actually going to read quite a floral bit. Do it. Which cuts. I, I found that the kind of, there's the, this juxtaposition in the book massively between this really spare language and then these scenes where things are noticed, like a silver birch is noticed when he's being um, no. pained. And, you know, there are various things that Billy, I feel that that's the inner interior of Billy, maybe. Um, and it almost makes it so much more difficult to to bear the cruelty because he's got this inner world of you know noticing a thrush and stroking its back anyway he's in a big fight in the school playground and he's pushed into a coal heap he's being bullied and he washes his hands after um after the fight and this is just the description of him washing his hands okay it says a tap had been left running and its flow was powerful enough to maintain a whirlpool in the bottom of the sink billy plugged the next sink and ran the hot water tempering it with cold water and testing it until the bowl was well filled. He pushed his sleeves up to his elbows and immersed both hands. The level in the bowl rose and the displaced water escaped down the overflow. Billy leaned on his arms, his hands moulded to the shape of the bowl, and as the steam drifted up about his face, he closed his eyes and smiled like the Bisto kid. He bent over the bowl and slowly dipped to his face, held it and made the water boil by blowing into it. He stood up, shaking his face and wiping the water from his eyes. Then he lathered his hands from a bottle of liquid soap and fouled the water by rinsing them. He lathered them again, made an O with the forefinger and thumb of his right hand and blew gently on the membrane gathered there. It blossomed to a bubble, the spectrum curving in its skin as it left his hand and floated quietly towards the floor. He reached out to take it back, touched it, gone. He blew some more but they came out small so he let them drift and time their own oblivion. Then, out it came, a jewel, hanging heavy in the air. He reached out to catch it. It bounced off the buff of air, then wavered in the suction as he withdrew his hand. He followed it, and as it fell, he placed his hand below it, allowing his hand to fall more slowly than the bubble, so that slowly, very slowly, the bubble fell closer to his hand. Falling, bubble over hand, both falling, until finally the bubble landed gently on the falling palm. Billy eased them to a halt and stood up, smiling. He tilted his hand and shifted his head to catch the colours from different angles and in different lights, and while he was looking, it vanished, leaving him looking at a lathered palm. 
Amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? That is just amazing. I mean, it's it it it's a moment of of Billy's. You know, it's Billy's soul in this. And this is and this is a man who didn't read a novel until he was twenty one. I mean, I do think the Heinz's story is incredible. I mean, he he just he grew up reading comics. There were no books in the house, and he. He was staying. I think he was. He was in digs with a, an English uh, graduate when he was maybe when he was teaching, and he said, "Have you got any books I could read?" And he, his friends, thinking, well, he's, "I'll find him the thinnest book I can find," found him a copy of Animal Farm, and from that moment onwards, he just that was it. He just read and read and read, and I think people often compare his style that he was influenced by Hemingway, but the, honestly, there is one of the great things about this book is there's so much more. I mean, really extraordinary writing than even the film would suggest that there would need to be for the story. Uh, and some of the sentences, really, really rich book. Some of the sentences are almost like a haiku. There are the, the. I just got one in the notebook, which I'll just quickly read. Which it just says, "A call, an echo, an empty yard, a sheet of paper captured against the wire by the wind." I mean, that as a sentence is just like, oh, so good. Bob, um, you said that you read the book when you were at school. Yeah, because it was on the curriculum, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, it, it would have been <clears throat> by the late 70s, which is not that long after it was published, I suppose. Um, and I think you were saying earlier, Barry Hines was um, um, is still angry about the lack of working-class writers or on, or on school curriculums. But I think um, the reason that I, you know, I've learned about the Chartists and Peter Lou at school and things like Billy Liar, uh, were on our English curriculum would have been largely down to cares and, uh, and that generation of writers coming through and being unignorable. Um, and I think those things probably aren't on the curriculum anymore. Certainly not the, the history parts aren't because well, cares definitely uh, Kestrel for a knave definitely isn't any. It is. It isn't. That. It isn't really. Wow. Um, I I think one of the things um, I was really surprised about going back to this book, I would be very interested. I'm going to ask a question of the many teachers gathered in this audience in a minute. Um, I was really surprised at how much of this book, you know, you might think it's about class consciousness or you might think it's about training a kestrel, but I can't think of a better British novel about British schools even though it was written nearly 60 years ago, that, that there does not seem to be a rich vein of... Rose was saying, well, there's Grange Hill, but that's not a novel. I mean, you know, there, there's not a kind of socialist realist tradition of writing about how horrible children can be to one another and how horrible, inadvertently perhaps, or deliberately, teachers can be to, to students. I wonder... Are there any teachers here who have taught Kess? One yes. At the back, yes. Uh, what, luck, what luck. You're right at the very back and I can't hear you. <laughs> Give me a thumbs up if they enjoyed it. They loved it. They loved it. <laughs> Round of applause. Yeah. I loved it. I, but one of the reasons I think it, maybe it was, it was um, Barry Hines himself said he used to like reading it. He let, School kids loved it because of the swearing. Yeah, so it was. It was literally everybody would read. He said often these were classrooms where kids had not had stories read to them since the, if ever, since they were very young. And Kes was the thing that unlocked reading. Kestrel for a Nave was the thing that unlocked reading for them because they were all sitting there waiting to say, "Bastard, <laughs> <laughs> twat." 
Our friend Frank Cottrell Boyce says something very similar in a foreword that he wrote to an edition of Kez, where he says, um, What are stories for? One of the best-loved scenes in A Kestrel for a Knave comes when Mr. Farthing asks Billy to help him illustrate the difference between fact and fiction by telling the story of the first time he flew Kess. The teacher's gentle prodding finally unlocks a soaring poetry in Billy, and for a moment, we and his classmates see the boy's true potential, as, like a falcon, he takes flight. The lesson ends with the boys being told to write some fiction. Billy's tall tale turns out to be a simple account of an unremarkable pleasant day, a day when he had chips and beans for tea, all the teachers were polite to him, and, a heartbreaking detail, the stairs were carpeted. The fact that Billy sees stair carpets and respect as unobtainable fantasies tells you all you need to know about his losses and his hopes. What are stories for? Stories are lies that tell the truth. Well, thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank. And I believe, as if by magic, Bob, we have Billy's tall tale here, don't we? Oh, thanks. Yeah. One day I woke up and my mother said to me, Here, Billy, there's your breakfast in bed for you. There was bacon and egg and bread and butter and a big pot of tea. When I had my breakfast, the sun was shining outside and I got dressed and went downstairs. We lived in a big house up Moorside, Moor Edge, sorry. And we had carpets on the stairs, in the hall, and central heating. When I got down, I said, Where's our Judd? He's going to the army, my mother said, and he's not coming back. But your dad's coming back instead. There was a big fire in the room, and my dad came in carrying his case that he took away with him. I haven't seen him for a long time, but he was just the same as when he went away. I was glad he'd come back and our child had gone away. When I got to school, all the teachers were good to me. They said, hello, Billy. How are you going on? And they all patted me on the head and smiled. And we did interesting things all day. When I got home, my mother said, I'm not going to work anymore. And we all had chips and beans for tea. And then we got ready and we all went out to the pictures. We went upstairs and had ice cream at the intervals and then we all went home and had fish and chips for supper and then we went to bed. So that's Billy's dream day. Uh, there's a heartbreaking detail, always the detail, where Billy runs to the mother for comfort and she's embarrassed yeah. to demonstrate any physical affection to him. Um the mother who in the film is played by the Coronation Street actress Lynn Perry, um, who was not a professional actress at that time. Did you know that? She goes into Corrie because of being in Kess. So, Rose, what is it about... Uh, let's just move to the film for a moment. What is it about the film that... I think your microphone is dead. Hello. <laughs> Um, what is it about the film that continues to speak to people? It, it, it's still Ken Loach's most famous 
and most beloved film. What is it? What is the thing in it that that continues to speak to us? I think there are lots of things, but I think one of the things is this idea of someone that Billy doesn't have his he doesn't have a voice at all. And when he's asked to describe the hawk, he can't. His teacher describes the feeling of it. He, you know, he. I feel that it's this idea of everyone has a thing inside them that is imagination or magic or love or humanness and that's what the film shows in Billy and Kess it's this idea of even though everything is against you you've got this Kess with you or you I don't know it's like it's it's kindness and humanness and yeah I would like to read you um the strap line on the film poster for Kess when it was first issued and then ask you to answer a simple question, and we'll just go along. They beat him. They deprived him. They ridiculed him. They broke his heart, but they couldn't break his spirit. True or false? False. Bob? False. John? Yeah, I mean, false. I don't know. You just nobody knows what's going to happen to. Well, we we. It's an interesting to speculate what happens to Billy after the end of the film. How many people think Kess? I'm going to a show of hands. Is a hopeful film. <laughs> One man there, uh, an outlier. Thank you, sir. Uh, how many people think is a, a Kess is a hopeless film? How many people have no strong opinions on this question? <laughs> yes, many of you. Excellent. Um, I think the I think the film is more. I think the film is bleaker than the book in a way. Because? Be- well, because I think there is an inner life in the book that Billy has, which through the language that Heinz gives him, which you just can't get. So, for example, the really important bit Bob read earlier, they couldn't put that in the film. They tried it. They tried him writing the letter and I had a, a camera over his shoulder, but it was just went on too long. But it's, that letter is a very important because there's another major bit of the of, uh, that's not in the film, which is where he breaks into an empty cinema right at the end after he's discovered he's looking for Kez. And he sits and he, he literally projects a, a kind of a film from his imagination onto the screen and sit, sitting there with his dad. And you could argue that by the time he gets home, finds the bird, buries it and then goes to bed, which is, you know, that going to bed, but that actually though he's, he has begun to develop some, some inner strength that will see him through whatever it is he does next, probably not getting a, an apprenticeship. But I think that's one of the differences between fiction and, and films. You know, you, you, you kind of, when you see the, it's almost unbearable, the film, the, the ending where he buries the, the bird and then goes in. It's just, it's, it's very, very bleak. I think I agree with the gentleman who said it was a hopeful film. I think, and book, I think there is a very important moment near the end of the book where um, Judd has killed the bird and Billy looks to his mother to say, what are you going to do about this? You should do something. Is he going to get away with this? And she says she won't do anything. And it seems to me that's very important, that, that there is a moment of 
what you might call of it awareness, I suppose. Awareness of the system. I agree with you. I think the film is more closed. Yeah, no, I agree. It's um yeah, I mean it, because you can't you can't as Rose said, you can't get Billy's kind of internal life on on film. So um it's it's much bleaker. And and I think, you know, the facts it, it looks like a black and white film. It's not a black and white film. It, it gives the impression of being a black and white film. Everything about it is very dour, apart from the Brian Glover sequence, uh, which is funny. We've been holding that. And yeah, there's. Um, it's uh, yeah. The, the ending is 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 very it seems very final to me. That's what I get from the book. Is like you know it, everything's everything stacks against him, and it's like he's he's obviously you know poetic soul and. Is that going to come out in his life, or is he just going to end up with like a working down a mine or whatever? And and I I would say at the end of the film, you don't you don't think he's going to pull through and become an author or whatever, you know, or a whereas ornithologist. Whereas perhaps in the novel, there's a sense that someone with that imagination, someone with that sensitivity, and someone with that realization of what it takes to outwit the system, perhaps can do it. Perhaps. Yeah. So there's kind of a glimmer of hope there. Rose, I would really like to ask you about the scene with Brian Glover as the games teacher. Okay. How many people here think he seems like a really good bloke? <laughs> no one. Good. You can tell this is Green Man and everybody got picked last for games. Good. Heinz <laughs> was a games teacher. I know, but, you know, we can forgive him that. So that scene in the film plays for laughs. Yeah. Right? It doesn't in the novel, does it? No, not at all. I mean... We were chatting backstage and we both had a um, particularly sadistic PE teachers, I think. And, and for me, it's just, it takes me back to that place of, of, you know, coming last in PE, the PE teacher making you run around the thing when all the rest of the class is finished. It's torturous, that scene in the book. It's really torturous, but it's hammed up massively in the film. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really funny in the film. Yeah, yeah. That, but, but at the same time, it's slightly watering down the message and the message is... What you see in microcosm in the foot on the football field is the same system that you see playing out in the school at large and in society. Yeah, because the, the system is rigged by. Yeah, the PE teacher just wins. He gives himself the penalty. He, you know, everything is his game, and he's the ref. So he just, you know, he chooses that his team's going to win, and then he, it doesn't. And he's that. That's when that horrible shower scene. Yeah, yeah. Real. But Bob, you like football. Yes. You've read his first novel. So his first novel is about a footballer. Yeah, the, blind, the Blinder. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I haven't read it for a long time. I haven't read it immediately before this, but I remember really enjoying it. And again, it's very, it's, it's very hard, but it's, um, it's realistic. I can't think of a better football novel I've read. I mean, I've kind of, it's one of those things like, you know, books about fictional bands, so they tend to be, why would, why would you do that when there's the real thing exists and you can read a book about a footballer or a, or a real band? Um, but uh, the blinder is, is 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 very good. There's a good baseball novel, Dundalillo Underworld. Oh right, that is yeah. the best bit of sports writing I've ever. Some good boxing novels. <laughs> Ross Ray's and the Natural is another good football novel. Well, I'm gonna. I I, I the, my first book, which was published about 20 years ago, is a book about uh, what it means to be a man in this country if you don't like sport. <laughs> so I'm gonna read this bit. This is when they pick the team for football. I think this is the best description I've ever read of what it feels like as your, your classmates drift away from you uh, and you're left standing on your own on the touchline. Right then, stop moaning and start picking. I'll have Anderson. He turned away from Tibbet. 
and pointed to a boy who was standing on one of the intersections of the centre circle and the halfway line. Anderson walked off this cross and stood behind him. Tibbet scanned the line, considering his choice. I'll have Purdy. Come on then, Ellis. Each selection altered the structure of the line. When Tibbet had been removed from the centre, all the boys sidestepped to fill the gap. The same happened when Anderson went from near one end. But when Purdy and Ellis, who had been standing side by side, were removed, the boys at their shoulders stood still, therefore dividing the original line into two. These new lines were swiftly segmented as more boys were chosen, leaving no trace of the first major division, just half a dozen boys looking across spaces at each other, reading from left to right, a fat boy, an arm's length away, two friends, one tall with glasses, the other short with a hair lip, then a space of two yards, and Billy. A boy space away from him, a thin boy with a crew cut and a spotty face, and right away from these, at the far end of the line, another fat boy. Spotty crew cut was halfway between the two fat boys, therefore half of the length of the line was occupied by five of the boys. The far fat boy was the next to go, which halved the length of the line and left spotty crew cut as one of the end markers. Tibbet then selected the tall friend with glasses. Mr Sugden immediately selected his partner. They separated gradually as they walked away from the line, parting finally to enter their respective teams, and then there were three. Fatty, Billy and Spotty Crewcut. Blushing across at each other while the captains considered. Tibbet picked Crewcut. He dashed forward into the anonymity of his team. Fatty stood grinning. Billy stared down at the earth. After long deliberation, Mr. Sugton chose Billy, leaving Tibbet with Hobson's choice. But before either Billy or Fatty could move towards their teams, Mr. Sugden was already turning away and shouting instructions. It's such a brilliant kind of whittling down. Expose the weak, show them in front of everybody, and then just ignore them. And Brian Glover, I mean, is so so. Can't help feeling that the the fast show's competitive dad was basically based on <laughs> that that whole scene where he's knocking the kids out of the way in order to score. So just to um, wrap up, then I'd like to ask each of you: What is it about a kestrel for a knave that um, means we should still be reading it now, even though the world is superficially a different place? What is it about this novel that continues to speak to people? And, you know, I hope if you haven't read it, you might go from here, find a copy um, and, and, and discover this whole world laid out before you. Bob, what do you, what do you think it is that keeps it alive? Um, well, I don't, think, I don't think the world is a very different place, for one thing. Um, so I think it still seems, I mean, yeah, superficially it is, but uh, yeah, people haven't got jobs down mines. But I mean, um, it's, uh, it's very relatable. Um, how it's yeah about sort of power systems in in class system in Britain very obviously is is still very much there. I think schools now seem to be entirely guided towards uh, exam success and not real education, which is obviously what many school is not not about exam success, but trying to shun kids into the mines or you know um, industrial jobs in around Barnsley. Um, so I think it's very relatable, but yeah, really it's about the, the language. I mean, 
just from the the the, the best we've read today, I think it's pretty clear that he has a, a. It's just beautifully written. It's very very. It's, it's it's very it's very minimal, but yeah, it's it's, it's kind of like Japanese poetry almost. It's um, just describing washing hands or or a line dividing and subdividing. It's almost like uh, he's writing about yeah, it's about it's about detail, but it's um, it's uh, almost yeah, you know, like some some scientific kind of poetry really. Um, but the, the the language is very there's there's nothing florid yeah ever yeah it, yeah it's very very simple. The language is very simple and it's beautiful to read. Rose. I'm just going to keep it really short. I would say it's about finding light in darkness or finding grace in, you know, it's about having a glimpse of something in a world that can be really hard and dark. There's there's always a way of finding some kind of light. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. John? I think all of those things, I think that sense of something wild, just read the tiny little bit that he says, which is kind of iconic bit in the book where he says... Look, I know, so that's why it makes me mad when I take her out and I hear somebody say, look, there's Billy Casper there with his pet hawk. I could shout at him, it's not a pet. Sir, hawks are not pets. Or when folks stop me and say, is it tame? Is it heck tame? It's trained, that's all. It's fierce and it's wild and it's not bothered about anybody, not even about me, right? And that's why it's great. And that is, if there is a spirit of indomitability in Billy Casper, it's that understanding that the the bird is wild, even if he is not, even if he his life is 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 constrained and all that. It's it's a really profound and beautiful novel, really. Is. Yeah. Well, listen, we have to go. Thank you so much for being such a lovely audience and for listening to us and for listening to the work of Barry Hines. So, yeah. Thanks to Ro. Keep going. Thanks to Rose Blake. Thanks to Bob Stanley. Thanks to John Mitchison. I'm Andy Miller. Thanks, Barry Hines. Thank you. So there we go. There we all were. Uh, it was it was massive fun. I think it was very nice to be in an audience where a lot of people had obviously read the book and seen the film. There was a, there was a real warmth uh, that was sort of radiating off the audience. And I, well, at the beginning, we also asked if there were teachers, and there were quite a few teachers in the audience because the book, um, for many years, it's no longer on the national curriculum. I think we said in the podcast, mm. but. It uh, it was a book that was taught, and for a lot of children, I think was was a book that because it's got swearing in it and stuff. It was it was a it was an exciting moment in their reading in their reading lives. So, yeah, it was, it was a really really good. It was a it was a warm and happy occasion. I was thrilled we were discussing the book in front of an audience. Mm. I mean, on one level, I felt felt it was quite an obvious choice, but sometimes the obvious choice is the right choice, and the general affection for. Not just Kess, but the book and the film and the music. And the, it's a really important piece of British culture. Even if you know nothing else about Ken Loach or Barry Hines or, or John yeah. Cameron or the actors in the film or, you know, people feel this, this connection with it. Absolutely. I think that that is it's a book that people do feel very connected to, and I, I think we all talked about that in in in, in our own ways. But I, I think it's also it is a very important book in the in the development of of, of working class literature in this country because it, it's a book that has lasted as we've said before. It's it sold and sold and sold and, co and continues to sell, but somehow the the question mark over what happens to Billy Casper 
would Billy Casper have fared any differently today? Uh, as we think we said in the podcast, that's, those things are still unresolved. It's what makes it a, a great and lasting work of art. The sense we've gone yeah. backwards is quite an strong, already unfortunate position yeah. is, is pretty strong, I think, when you read the novel. Now, yeah. I, I mean, I can only say I went into making this episode feeling, you know, I thought I knew what, like all the best episodes, I thought I knew what I was getting into, but the energy provided to me by actually reconnecting with the book was was a powerful one. And to find that um, shared by the guests on stage and people in the audience was a really special thing. So I hope some of that comes over. And I will also add as a, as a final note that um, Barry Hines, notwithstanding he's no longer with us, has a new novel out next year. How? Um, well, he finished it in 2002. Two, but it, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. only now it's being published. It's called Springwood Stars. Yeah. Um, I don't know who's publishing. I think it might be And Other Stories who've brought the Gamekeeper back into print yeah, yeah. recently. Um, but I think there's a job of work to do to acknowledge Akeshul Freneva's Barry Hines' most important book. I mean, he would no doubt have agreed with that. But at the same time, there's a whole other body of work that is sitting there waiting to be rediscovered so although we 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 went the obvious route this time there are all those other books out there that you could um you could find and read and and discover more about a, a really important author uh johnny is there anything we want to say about how important it is that people um check out our patreon by all means visit our patreon and that for the price of some fish scraps at Casper's Fish and Chip Shop in Hoyland Common, Superb. which, to be honest, still it does exist. It is called Casper's, the, 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 uh, and you can buy fish scraps there. Uh, you can get a subscription to uh, the, on the lot listener level for two extra uh, po- podcasts a month. It's where we talk about what what we've been reading this week, right? We've yeah, moved books that section. And, it's true. We? It's where we talk about yeah. where, what we've been reading this week. So. so, if you want like new books as well as old books. Yeah. You get to hear from that mysterious female voice belonging to Nikki Birch, our producer. Sometimes she butts in every now and then. Yeah, she's that. She's there's a whole lot more of her on the <laughs> lot listed. So worth paying a few quid a month for. If you want more Nikki and no ads, you can subscribe through our Patreon. Um, that's it, though. I think, isn't it? Uh, yeah, we hope you've enjoyed it. Um, you know, we didn't get any feedback from self-esteem or. Lancome about whether we'd warm the crowd up for them, but I think we did. I think we, I think it was well, okay. I felt so. that Jockstrap definitely benefited. Oh, if you if you want to hear two old men discussing how good Jockstrap were at a music festival, make subscribe. sure you subscribe to Locklisted because we have we have major news to bring from the midlife audience. We have much to say, do we not, Andy? Much to say. <laughs> much, much to say. Thanks very much, everybody. And, uh, you know... Thanks for listening, what, everybody. What a treat to do this book. What an absolute treat Absolutely. to do this book. So, um, do read it. Please read it. It really is a masterpiece. Absolutely.